Well, the last time I actually spoke with you was actually a year ago. It was a year ago that I um, talked on the subject of First Peter. And because of that, and to help those who were not here at that time, um, I will give a very brief refresher, um, just so we are all on the same page as we um, move forward. Again, this letter was written to believers who have fled from Rome and dispersed because of the persecution that has taken place in Rome. At this time, Nero is the ruler of Rome. This is A.D. 64. During this time, there was a great fire in Rome that lasted for more than six days. It is believed that Nero himself started the fire that destroyed a large section of Rome. You see, Nero had a, an incredible lust for building. He enjoyed building. They believe it was Nero because he built his golden palace near the area in which the fire had started. Nero also wanted love and affection from his people of Rome. When the people blamed Nero for starting the fire, he put the blame on the Christians, saying that they had started the fire which burned the great library and many of the other buildings as it continued to rage through Rome. With the focus now on the Christians and not Nero, whom the people believed had started the fire, they began to persecute them. They became enemy number one, public enemy number one. Nero also played a major role when it comes to persecuting the saints. He took the saints and covered them with pitch, and he used them as torches in his garden for his garden parties. He also threw them into an arena, which they were attacked by dogs and wild beasts. The Christians who fled from Rome have left their homes and most of their possessions to save their lives and the lives of their families. In this letter, Peter does not focus on what they have left behind, but what they now have and what they have to look forward to. Peter reminds them that what they are going through is known by God. And you can see that in verse 2 of chapter 1. And they have a living hope that was given to them through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You can see that in verse 3. He likewise tells them they have an inheritance that no one is able to take away from them as it is kept by God. That is also seen in verses 4 and 5. Peter tells them to rejoice for what they have now and what they will have 
in the future. Even though now they are experienced various trials, it is to show the genuineness of their faith and its great value. You can see that in verses 6 and 7. Peter reminds them because of this great salvation that comes through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead for the forgiveness of their sins, these individuals love him. Though they have never yet met him personally, yet they love him. They understand that Jesus is the one who will bring about the salvation of their souls. This gives them the joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. You can see that in verses 8 and 9. This gift of salvation that these believers has, have was studied by their prophets and longed to know when the Messiah was to come and this salvation would take place. But what was revealed to them, it was not for them or their time, but it was for the believers at this time. This gift was so special that the angels longed to see and understand it. And you can see that in verses 10 through 12. I would encourage you to go back and listen to the previous messages as this was a very, very quick overview and a brief recap of verses 1 through 12. Now we come to the text of today. We're going to look at 1 Peter 1, verses 13 through 17. And if you would, would you please stand as we read the text today? This is what it says. Therefore, prepare your mind for action, and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially, According to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile. Let us pray. Father, I do thank you again for an opportunity to share the truth of your word. I pray that you would help me to speak clearly your message. But Father, I also pray for those who will be hearing this message, that they likewise will Accept the truth of your word, not because of who I am, but because of who you are. May we be faithful to your word. May we be obedient to it. May we apply it to our hearts and allow that word, that truth of your word, to change us. 
May we see you more clearly today. May we under the tr understand the truth in which you are trying to speak to us today. May you get the glory. May you get the honor. May we live lives that glorify you in everything we do. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. When you have been given a great, something of great value, how should you respond? Peter points his readers back to the salvation that was given to them. A salvation their prophets studied and longed to understand, but it wasn't for them. But those who came after them would experience this salvation through Christ Jesus. Because of this gift of salvation that has been given, Peter tells them they need to work on their thinking. Guess what? We need to likewise work on our thinking. Here's my proposition for today. Actively set your mind on his grace instead of the things of this world. Keep your mind free from distractions. Peter goes on to say, Therefore, prepare your mind for action, and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that we brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter tells them to prepare their minds for actions. Some translations say, gird up the loins of your mind. In the ancient world, the clothing worn were very loose. Where there was, if there were a situation in which they needed to move quickly, like in a battle, they would gather their garments and secure them under their belt. This would allow them to move freely without being entangled. So they would take their garments and pull it up between their legs and cinch it under their belt and so they can move freely. That was its purpose. Peter goes on to say, the battle is in your mind. You see, Paul also speaks of this as he speaks to the Corinthians and tells them this battle is in the mind. He says this in 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5. He says, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds, destroying, we, we destroy arguments and every lofty uh, opinion raised against the knowledge of God and takes every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Paul is saying to his readers, 
We are not to let our thoughts just run freely. We are to capture them. We are to subdue them. We are to bring them under the subjection of God's word. You have heard the statement, you must stop listening to yourself and start talking to yourself. How many of you have heard that statement before? You never heard it before. Think about it this way. Your brain your, says all kinds of stuff to you all the time. And, and it's in that time you need to stop that and begin to tell it what it needs to hear. When we let our minds just run freely, it goes generally to a negative condemnation. We need to stop listening and start speaking to ourselves. You see, our thoughts can move us in a positive upward direction or in a downward negative direction. We must ask ourselves, what does God's word say about our situation? You are now speaking to yourself rather than listening to yourself. We are to control our minds. In the same way, Peter is saying, you need to gather up your thinking. He understood it is our thinking that keeps us from seeing what is important and true. We can get so consumed about what the world thinks, our situation, our hurts, and our wants, that we forget what Christ has done and what he has given us. We forget what's important. In fact, if I were to ask you, what are some of the things you need to gird up in your mind? What would you say? We can, can, be, we can be consumed over our health, our finances, our children, our family, our marriage, our broken relationships, or even where we might live. You see, all these things are not it's not that they're not important, but they have a way of dominating our thinking and blinding us to what is important. Jesus likewise says in Matthew 6, 25, he says, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body what you will put on. It is not life, is not life more than food and your body more than clothing? To do, um, to some individuals, unfortunately, these things are everything. But I must ask you, are they everything? We also need to protect 
are mine. Our thinking can cause anxiety and confusion. We also read in Philippians 4, verses 6 through 7. Paul tells us, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with, thanks- with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Paul says, do not be anxious, but pray. Last week, Michael did an astounding job challenging each of us in the area of prayer. How about you? What does your prayer life look like? We need to be a people who pray. How many of you have been able to change anything in your life by worrying over it? I would imagine none of you. At least I have not seen that for myself. I have not changed anything by spending all my time worrying about certain situations. All we have done is wasted time and energy over things that are beyond our control. What we need to learn how to do is pray. We need to be a praying people. Going back to our text, Peter goes on to say, be sober-minded. The purpose of being sober-minded is that you will be a person who is steadfast, anchored, secured in your thinking, a person who is self-controlled. And again, as we saw in the book of James, that person is a mature individual. When a person is not sober-minded, they're They are unbalanced. They are unsure. They are wavering in their thinking. And again, we saw that in the book of James. James 1, verses 5 through 11 tells us, If any one of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven, tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. For he is double-minded, he is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. You see, when we are not sober-minded, we are intoxicated in our thinking and about the things of this world. 
We desire things of this world more than what is to come in the next. Our affection and our desires are being pulled in two different directions. Jesus speaks of this conflict. In Matthew 6, 24, Jesus says, No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will devote the one and despise the other. He says, you cannot serve God and money. But it's interesting. In 2 Timothy 4, 10, Paul gives us an example of someone who loved this world most. Paul tells Timothy about Demas and his love for this world. He says, for Demas in love with this present world has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Paul says, I was deserted by Demas because he loved this world more than anything else. He left me. What do you love? Do you love this world more than what is yet to come? You see, these believers who Peter is writing to have left Rome and they are in exile. They have left their homes and many of their possessions. They've been detached from friends and loved ones. Because see, what we, can, we can't forget is they lived there, they had relationships with others, they had a community that they lived in, but because of the persecution and what has taken place, many of them have now dispersed. They have left. They're, they're running away to protect their families. And so those relationships, they no longer have. But Peter's instructing them, don't look back to what you have lost and what you have left behind. See, Peter is not under the impression that they are not in pain or what they have lost. He knows that they have lost something great. But he understands we can waste so much time and energy looking back to things we cannot change. We are not able to go back and change what has taken place in the past. The best we can do is to learn from it and keep moving forward and to pray. Peter tells them, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He says, because of this salvation, we can look forward to what is coming. In the middle of their suffering, Peter tells them, they have hope 
that is in Jesus Christ and his return. You see, we too need this reminder that when life is hard and we are suffering and overwhelmed, we have hope in this salvation. Paul reminds us in Romans 8, 24 and 25, he says, For in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But we hope for what we do not see. We wait for it with patience. Paul reminds us that, the tr- that this true hope does not disappoint. But Peter goes on in our text as we look at our next section. He says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Obedience is not a word that we like to hear today. We want to question, why do I need to obey you? I don't know if you've heard this statement. You're not the boss of me. As parents, we have experienced the continual questioning of why. Why do I need to do that? Why? Why? You see, in our society, we question, why is there only one way to God? If I'm a good and kind person, shouldn't that be enough? We question in our society the validity of God's word and his instructions. We might say something, why can't I live any way I choose and still love Jesus and be a Christian? You see, Jesus tells his disciples in John 14, 15, that there is a gauge that reflects who we are. He says, this is Jesus speaking, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. John 14, 15. You see, obedience is expected for those who love Jesus and God his Father. The purpose of obedience. Peter is saying to his readers, be obedient and do not return to your former passions when you were without knowledge of the truth. You see, that's the same for us. We know what is right. And he says, do not go back there. You see, conformity is what the world wants for you and I. It wants you and I to blend in with everyone else. 
so that we look like them, we talk like them, we live like them. But Paul tells the Romans in chapter 12, verse 1, he, offer, he says to offer their bodies as living sacrifice. This is what he says. I appeal to you, therefore, brother, to be, <clears throat> therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. But he didn't stop there. He added verse 2. He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. You see, our world wants to conform us. I don't know if you've seen this, but have you seen the square watermelons? You haven't seen a square watermelon. So what they do, as the watermelon is growing, they put it in a box. And as it grows, it's now square. Conformity. They've also put it in a heart-shaped box, and when it grows, it looks like a heart. Conformity. Guess what? The world in which you live in, I live in, it's trying to conform us to look like it. We are not to be conformed to this world. Our conduct reflects our obedience. Peter says, we are, not to, we are not called to be conformed to this world, but we are called to be holy as God is holy. This transformation comes about at our obedience, by our obedience. This is not a passive obedience, but it is an active one. We are to be holy in our conduct, in our speech, in how we live. So if I were to ask you, what does your conduct look like when you are at home? What does your conduct say about you when you are at work or when you're out with your friends? Can you say that your private self and your public self are the same? That you are who you are no matter what arena in which you are walking in, that you are the same? You see, it is easy to come to church on Sunday and show everybody how good you are. But is that the true you? Or are you appearing to be something that you are not? 
in Peter's second letter, in 2 Peter 1, verses 3 and 4, he says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to be his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of his divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. Peter is saying to his readers and to us that we are not without the provisions to make this happen. This ability has already been granted to you. It is already given to you. But the question is this. Will you submit in obedience to what the word says. Will you live by that truth? We are transformed through the obedience. You see, we are called to be holy as God is holy. When it comes to conformity, we are to look like Christ. That is Romans 8.28, that we are to be conformed to the image of Christ. You see, when God rescued the children of Israel out of Egypt, they were to be a people that represented the one who rescued them. And we see that in Thess- uh, Leviticus 11, verses 44 and 45. God says to these people, For I am the Lord your God, consecrate yourself therefore and be holy for I am holy. He says, you shall not defile yourself with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground. Excuse me. For I am the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy for I am holy. These individuals, the children of Israel, were to be different than any other people, groups around them. They were to stand out. Jesus likewise tells us in Matthew 5, 48, he says, therefore be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Paul likewise tells us in Ephesians 1, uh, 5, 1, Therefore be imitators of God. As beloved children, God tells his children of Israel again in Leviticus 18, 30, So keep my charge never to practice any of these abomination customs that were practiced before you and never to make yourself unclean by them. He says, I am the Lord, your God. 
See, God has also called you and I to be different. We are to stand out. In everything in which we do, we are to look different. So if I were to ask you again, how peculiar are you? Now, I'm not talking about being weird. Some of us can be weird. But are we different? Do people see us as being different? Can they see a difference of how we live, how we speak, how we carry ourselves? We are to be different. We are accountable for our obedience. Again, in verse 17 of our text, Peter says, And if you are called, if you call on him as Father, who judges impartially, according to each one's deeds, he says, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile. You see, if we are Christians, then we understand how we live is important. You will not live just like anyone else. You will live your life out of fear and reverence for God. You will live a life that brings honor to him. God will judge our obedience. We must understand and never forget that one day before God will judge each person. He will judge us fairly. God will judge each of us by what you have done in this life. Peter understands that these individuals are in exiles far from home, yet he wants them to understand how they conduct themselves is still important. They are not given a free pass just because they may have been mistreated. Now, it is not uncommon today to hear someone give an excuse for their bad behavior. It was because of my mama. It was because of my daddy. It was because of the neighborhood in which I lived. That is why I am this way. Now, I'm not saying that those things may not have an influence. But we must understand we are responsible for what we do in this life. You see, we can live our lives without the fear of the consequences that is yet to come. You see, it has become okay to blame our behavior on the situation or on someone else. But we must understand our judge has been keeping an account. Peter does not want his readers to be so comfortable or discouraged in their exile that they forget that there is a judge whom they will one day give an account. 
of their actions, even though they are in exile. Jesus tells us in Matthew 12, verses 36 and 37, he says, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. We also read in Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15, as John the Apostle writes, Then I, then I saw a great white throne, and him who seated on it, from his, present, from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. He says, this is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown in the lake of fire. You see, this is, an, this is a sobering picture of what is yet to come. And because of it, because it is yet in the future, we may not spend the time necessary thinking about it. We might say something like, I will get my life together when? Or I have plenty of time to get that done. I don't want to give this up quite yet. You see, it is easy for us to assume that we have plenty of time to get our life together and come to Christ. But do we? Two weeks ago, we lost a great basketball player, his daughter, along with others. They never imagined that on that day they would give an account for their lives. You see, you and I must understand that we do not know when we will have to give an account for our lives. I would imagine they had planned out their day, they had planned out what time we were going to meet, they had it all worked out for that day and maybe a couple days after that. They met up, they got in the helicopter, and they proceeded. 
never knowing that God says, today is your day. You and I need to live and understand that today could be our day. You and I, we may not make it home today. I pray that you do. But that has not guaranteed us. He has determined when your time will be. It is something to think about. Here's my concluding thoughts. What areas of your thinking do you need to gird up and prepare for action? Our thinking, again, pulls us away from what is important. In what ways have you not been sober-minded? You've been unbalanced. You've not subjected yourself to God's truth and God's word, and you've not lived by it. And lastly, in what ways have you not been obedient to God's word in your life? See, as we sit here, we all look pretty good. You all look great to me. But guess what? I cannot see the condition of your heart. But God can. You may fool everyone around you, but we cannot fool God. He knows the condition of your heart. He knows if you actually belong to him or not. So when I think about these first few verses, See, Peter takes them from understanding this great salvation in which you have, that nobody can take this salvation from you. It is guarded. It is protected by God himself. It is an inheritance that is yours that nobody can take away. But he moves them forward and says, how you act is yet important. Yes, you have this, but you cannot just live any kind of way. You must understand, yes, you've been mistreated. Yes, your life is difficult at this time, but you are responsible for how you live. Ladies and gentlemen, each of us are responsible for how we live. Are we obedient to his word? and live by his word, subject ourselves to his word in obedience as we follow him. He has called us to be a different people who stand out, who says, this is my Lord and Savior. I stand for him. I live for him in everything in which I do. Let us pray. Father, I thank you again for who you are. 
I thank you for this great salvation that we have. I pray that we would be faithful to you, that we would understand how we live is important. May we be obedient to you. May we live by your word. May we find our hope in your word. May we rejoice of the salvation which you have given us. A salvation that cannot be taken away from us. An inheritance that is yet to come. So precious is this gift in which you have given us. May we be faithful. Father, you only know the condition of one's heart. There may be someone here today who does not know you. I pray that today that they would surrender their lives to you and live for you. That they too will have a hope that is yet to come. That they can rejoice even in the middle of their hardships. Even in the middle of their difficulties. That they know that there is true hope and there is hope. Jesus Christ, the one who was willing to go to the cross to pay the penalty for my sins, their sins, that we can have a relationship with God the Father. I pray that they would make that decision today, that they would submit to you and live for you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.